I am very excited today because we are starting a, a new series, Allegiance, what it looks like to be disciples who serve this Prince of Peace while living in a culture that, let's face it, is currently at war with itself. That's not really an overstatement, I don't think. We're living in one of these ages where you know, we're forced to ask ourselves, every single one of us, uh, we have to ask ourselves, as for me and my house, who will we serve? Where does our allegiance lie? as followers of Christ, because I don't know if you've noticed or not, culturally speaking, uh, the, the temperature in our country is like about 150 degrees, right? And it's not like a dry heat where, it, you know, it's like they say in Phoenix, uh, it's just boiling lava hot. And, um, and just to think, make things more fun, it's an election season. So isn't that bringing out the best in us Americans? Yay! Um, so, but there is one thing I've noticed, I'm, you know, I'm half a century old now, one thing I've noticed about this election that does seem different, and a lot of people I've talked to feel the same way, that throughout my life, you know, politics have always been a little bit ridiculous and bizarre. Uh, they, they've always been this sort of over-the-top reality show feeling thing, you know, uh, every two to four years when we do this. What is different, it seems like now, is the climate isn't just uh, silly. It's, it's, it feels threatening. There's something different about what's, what's happening now. There's, there's now for the, you know, one of the first times in my lifetime, there's this very real danger. Uh, there's these elements in our, in our country, these uh, extreme elements of our country that are, are bringing uh, the rest of the country sort of to the tipping point of, of violence. And um, never before, like never before the church, the church needs to be the church. And uh, the, the country is desperate for the church to be the church, I believe. And, to, and, 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 you know, for the first time in, in 150 years or so, the idea of another actual civil war, not just a war of words, but actual violence for some folks feels like a reasonable next step. Um, and surveys show Americans uh, increasingly don't even care if their candidate is elected democratically or not, as long as they get into office. That has become sort of the most important thing. And what's interesting is it's not just fringe citizens either. It's not just like fringe this or some extremist splinter group, you know, that like lives out in the mountains or something like that who are spouting dangerous rhetoric. It's the politicians themselves, you know. They're supposed to be the grown-ups, but these guys, now it's like, it's like a bunch of shipwrecked children have taken over the halls of leadership and, you know, it's Lord of the Flies have broken out. And we seem to be in this age where there's no longer a, a scandal or a secret sin that's bad enough uh, to derail a candidate. Have you noticed that? Uh, it, it is funny. As long as he or she like, adds uh, seats to our team, you know, get, you know, bolsters our team's side. 25 years ago, you know, the motto was you know, character counts, character matters. Not so much anymore. Our, thro our threshold for how despicable someone has to be before we can't support them has pretty much become non-existent. Um, and most of our candidates, I think, could just you know, pretty much be filmed kicking their dog, waking up naked in the yard, and selling their mother to the black market, and we wouldn't really care. It's, it's like this bad country western song we can't wake up from. Um, that's what the election cycle is to me. Um, and every time you go online, too, everyone is screaming their heads off about every issue you can imagine. Not only just the, the age-old issues that we always, you know, argue and wrestle with, but now we're screaming about pronouns. We scream about CRT, Black Lives Matter, uh, abortion, police funding, kids in cages, all these different things. And meanwhile, both sides, it feels like just dehumanize and demonize the other with language that leaves no room for any kind of nuance or listening or like understanding uh, each other's perspectives about it, these issues. There's no room for that anymore. You can't, you can't have nuance or you're like a sellout, right? It's just, ah. And both parties are then capitalizing on the fear that they created yeah. by going apocalyptic, right? So you hear it everywhere. Every, whichever, you know, channel you, you turn it on, it's, it's civilization will end if we're not the ones voted into office. The future of America, the future of democracy and freedom and, and justice and civilization depends on us winning this election. And then here, here's where I get really cranked up and, and grieves me to the soul is that it's not just the world who's itching for the fight, which, yeah, you'd expect people to, but it's often Christians. Christians get sucked into the very forefront of the hysteria 
and not just everyday Christians, as Christian influencers, pastors and prophets and talk show hosts, all of us are, are guilty of this, acting as if Jesus told his followers the most important thing is to guard the front doors against the sinners, right? To preserve political power at any cost, as if that's how he said will change the hearts and minds of the world. Some of you are thinking, how many minutes before I can safely walk out of here <laughs> right now? I know. Because Generations Church, hey, we've always marched to a little bit of a different drummer, right? Namely, namely the one named King Jesus. Um, amen. We, we thought, given this Twilight Zone circus that we find ourselves in, way back during the year, you know, looking forward to this block of weeks here, realized, hey, what's right in the middle of this season? <gasps> Election day. We thought it'd be a good teaching opportunity to, as a church together, the family here, talk about the kingdom of God that we're called to represent. Because it contrasts with other kingdoms of the world. It really does. There, there, there is a difference. And this moment gives us an occasion to talk about what God's relationship with uh, governments are. Human rulers, human systems of rule. We don't really spend, you know, just kind of don't like to talk a whole lot about politics in here. We try to make this an oasis uh, uh, away from that sort of world. But this gives us a chance to talk about God and politics. Now, if you've been here for any length of time, it's likely that you've heard me say something uh, along the lines of what I'm going to be saying over the next few weeks. Um, but I've read just enough of neuroscience, uh, very little, but just enough to not be embarrassed about repeating myself anymore because they, the scientists tell us that it's been proven now that it takes uh, humans about seven times hearing something before it sinks in. So if you're sitting there grumbling, Scott, I have heard this three times already, then rejoice and take heart because you only have four to go before you get it. Amen. We're halfway there. And if you're new to Generations today, uh, you maybe you've never heard someone talk about this from this perspective before. You might find what I'm going to say differs a little bit from maybe what you were taught that Christians um, commonly think about God and country and politics and freedom and all that. You've been led to believe that Jesus, you know, wants you to take up arms against you know, those sinners and socialists out there. Um, neither of which I condone becoming a sinner or a sinner. Uh, but I do believe that God has called us to treat those who disagree with us differently than the world treats its opponents. Amen? Amen? Amen. We're, called, we're called to be different, not just another party. We're called to be the salt and light to the world, to tell the hope of the world, to be bringers of the good news of the gospel. We're not called to be defenders of the gospel. That's a shock to some people. We're not called to be defenders of Christendom. We're not even called to be defenders of Jesus. I mean, think about this for a second. We're not called to defend Jesus. Uh, Jesus had super specific feelings about people trying to defend him, and, and they weren't warm and fuzzy. They weren't. Once his very best friend, Peter, tried to defend Jesus with violence, and Jesus whirled around and called him Satan. That was an awkward moment for Peter, right? So at Generations, we made a commitment to say no to the culture war, and, and what I do love about this church, what I love about you guys is we do our best. We don't do it perfectly, but we do our best to value unity over uniformity. We have, in, in this room, as I'm looking around, I'm seeing some of your faces, we have Democrats and Republicans, right? We've got Libertarians and, and Greens, and I don't know, a couple of you might, might be a secret anarchist. I can't quite tell. But we have, we have all of you. We have every race, every nationality, uh, every immigration status is represented here in this room, and I love that. And what we value is unity in Christ. I don't, I don't care about your politics. I don't care who you vote for. I really don't. And I hope you hear me sincerely. I really don't. So I just ask you to keep an open mind in this series. Um, you don't have to agree with me, but just ask this one question. If you're listening over the next month, you're trying not to get triggered, and I appreciate that, and I sympathize with that. Ask yourself this one question. Is what he's saying biblical? 
is what he's saying, and especially is what he's saying biblical according to Jesus. Because in the end, that's really the only question that matters, right? Um, Is this teaching biblical or not? Is this what Jesus says? So we want to keep an open mind on that. By the way, if you're uh, interested in kind of a deeper dive in some of the things that we'll be talking about here, I wholeheartedly recommend several books. Uh, The ones on the screen here, these are all Christian authors, uh, and at least four out of them are, are pastors. Um, these have all uh, been, there's other books too, but uh, these are the ones I wanted to highlight because they are uh, good Bible-believing Christians, and these have been invaluable for me in my journey in this subject over the years and, and preparing for this series. Because full disclosure, uh, you know, I always want to be really honest with you guys, full disclosure, uh, this has been a growing process for me too. I am not naturally nonpartisan. I am super opinionated. Um, I am super partisan, my natural self. I'm ready to draw the sword, slice the ear. Jesus cured me, or at least he's working on me. Praise the Lord. He's working on me. Uh, and, and really, he has done it through giving me a love that I never had, a love for people and a value for unity in Christ. A love for people and a value for unity. So that's our question. Where does your allegiance lie? Who have you surrendered your crown to? To a party? To a platform? To the latest modern messiah? To a news source? To a flag? To a church? Or a ministry? Or a denomination? Or is our allegiance that we have pledged to the Lamb of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Is that where our allegiance lies? Now, I just want to warn you, it's really easy to give the right answer right now sitting in your seat. Everybody's like, yeah, the lamb. (laughs) I choose Jesus. It's always the right answer. If I say something, just probably shout out Jesus, right? It's always the right answer. But what we are going to be doing in here, we're we're all going to be examining ourselves, examining ourselves. What is the truth down in our hearts? And I'm not talking to you as somebody who's like got this all perfect and I'm just walking around like a little angel all day long. I, every day I have to go, oh yeah, God, help me to think kingdom. Help me to be kingdom-minded in this because you could feel it start to rile. You know, you can get riled up. I understand that. So let's talk about for a second what a kingdom is. Let's talk about kingdom for a minute. A kingdom is this term we use a lot, but it comes from, the, from literally it means a king's dome. Kingdom uh, or the domain over which someone is king, whatever domain of authority this king has. So the kingdom of God, when we talk about kingdom of God, is the dome over which God is king. Pretty simple. So when people submit their lives to him, they come into the dome over which he is king. He rules there, and and we have surrendered to that rule. Whatever dome you used to be subjected to, you have surrendered that loyalty, that allegiance, and you now submit to God's rule. That makes you a kingdom person, right? Um, not, you, you submit to God's rule. It's not a, not a church's rule. It's not a denomination's rule to tell you what to do. It's not a tribe. It is God's rule. The kingdoms of this world, by contrast, are the domes over which anyone or anything other than God is king. And it doesn't matter if that country uh, has a literal king, or if they have a president or a prime minister or a general or whoever it is. It doesn't matter what system of government it is, if it's a democracy or a parliamentary republic or a communist, whatever, socialist republic. If there's a dude or a government in charge, that is a domain uh, where someone rules over someone else, okay? And what the Bible reveals to us is that this kingdom of God really is fundamentally different. It's fundamentally different. So even for us Christians, you know, we, just because we get saved doesn't mean like we got it all figured out all of a sudden. Our mind just becomes like immediately renewed. We really have to like understand God's way. And this kingdom of God is, it's different than what comes naturally to us. It's fundamentally different than any kingdom of the world that has ever existed, right? The kingdom of God is not uh, just the kingdom of Israel part two, We've tried that before. It was called the Holy Roman Empire. That was the idea. A new and improved Israel, right? Now we'll rule the world for Jesus or else, you know, bow. Um, 
it wasn't the Holy British Empire, right? The, that, that didn't work. It wasn't even, it's not even the Holy American Empire. The closest we've ever gotten is the Republic of Texas, and that didn't even last very long, fortunately. Uh, I'm just kidding. Because the kingdom of heaven, it transcends all boundaries, transcends all walls, all political lines, uh, every, every barrier that humans set up to divide across, ideological lines, gender lines, racial lines, national lines, it transcends all that. In short, the kingdom is what it looks like when Jesus Christ is fully in charge of us. When his love, mercy, grace, forgiveness, shalom, healing, wholeness, when it rules and reigns in our lives, then we're walking in the kingdom. Uh, the kingdom of God rules and reigns. Now, to see the significance of this, we need to go back to the beginning. And I don't mean like 1776 beginning. I mean like the year nothing. Uh, when everything was beginning. There was that little cartoon we just saw sets us up for this because in Genesis 1... When God creates human beings, he gives us a dome over which we are to be lords. And the dome is the earth and the animal. That's what the Bible says. So this is, and you know, where he tells us to men and women, be fruitful, go out through all the earth, be fruitful, uh, you know, be fruitful and have dominion throughout the earth. He tells everybody, have dominion. So this is our domain of responsibility and authority. Our job is to reflect the servant character of God in how we take care of the earth and the animals. That's the dome over which we're king. But notice something, that God never told us to reign over one another. That's not in the, any of the first two chapters there. We're, we're going to rule the earth. We're going to rule the animal kingdom, but not over one another. And a fundamental reason for that is because we were all made in the image of God. Isn't that interesting? We're all made in the... So as the cartoon showed, the image of God in that ancient Near East, that, that, whenever that phrase was used, even outside of Israel, that phrase usually was applied only kings. Kings were thought of as the image of God because they were the rulers. But see, God calls all of us the image of God. We're all to be rulers, and rulers are not subject to other rulers, not a, at least of the same kind, right? A king can't be a slave to a neighboring king right? And still be a king. And so we're to honor each other as that imago Dei, that Latin for image of God. Everyone on the planet, they're, they're a human being who deserves the respect and honor of a king. In God's original design, God alone was to be the ruler of the whole cosmos, and we were under him. So he rules it all. We're under him. We're never supposed to be doing any kind of lording over people. Jesus even tells his disciples over in Matthew, he tells them, that's the way of the world, right? That, that, that's what the world is always doing. Everybody's trying to lord it over each other. It's not so with you. He says that. It's not so with you, right? So this means we were neither created to lord it over each other or to seek lords among us. We were created for either. Now, God's original plan for people to rule together as equals with one another pretty much got blown up in the garden, right? And in the fall, it gets blown up. But then thousands of years later, what happens? God calls Israel out of Egypt. And these are going to be a special people. And he begins to form this people into a nation because God never has a problem with nation. He never says he has a problem with nations. He does have a problem with empires, which we'll go to uh, later in our series. But he, again, he instructs Israel, even in their very founding, he instructs them, don't have any kings. Don't worry about kings. He forbids them to have kings because he wants to put on display to the other nations something of his original idea of having people live under his loving lordship, right? Not under the rule of any human. God wanted Israel to be different. He wanted to be, he was like, don't be like the other nations. Show them what my original design was. And Israel actually tried to operate this way for a couple hundred years. It, it's, it's tough for uh, fallen, broken people to live this way, but they tried it. They had no king. They lived with like tribal elders and judges to sort of oversee things. But they were a nation of equals ruled directly by God who would speak to them through prophets. But finally, if you know the story, there becomes this point where Israel gets, they get insecure right? Because they're looking around. They have, they're being ruled by this invisible God. That's kind of hard for people. And so they want a king because they find it really hard to put all of their trust in this 
invisible God, okay? And it was the time of Samuel. Samuel was the last of the, the great, uh, early great prophets of Israel. And so in 1 Samuel 8, we read this. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and said to Samuel at Ramah, they said to him, dude, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Samuel had these sons and they were pretty much losers. They were wicked. They were just kind of like acted like they were big shots and, and the, the people did not like them. So, so Israel's getting kind of nervous about what's going to come next when, you know, when Samuel's gone. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said this, it displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected. In other words, don't take this personal, Samuel, right? It's not that you're a bad judge. They're not rejecting you, but they have rejected me as king. They've rejected me as their king. Now listen to them, he said, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will proclaim to them as his rights. And so the Lord tells him in, in, the other, in the remaining verses there, he tells Samuel all these kind of really nasty things that are going to happen to the people if they have a king. And all, and all of it's basically saying this, when you give this kind of power to an individual, a power invariably corrupts. Invariably. And so Samuel goes back and he tells the people, says, he says, look, God said you can have a king if you want to, but you really don't want to do this, right? Because this king, he's going to get wealthy at your expense. This king is going to claim everything as his own, his rights. This king is going to take your young men. He's going to send them out to war and they're going to die. This king is going to take your daughters and make them his wives. He's going to give your other daughters away to, you know, his aristocratic friends, this sort of thing. And this king's going to take your other children and make them his household slaves or his field slaves. It's not going to go well, you're not going to like it. But the Israelites don't want to hear any of this, right? And so they respond, no, 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 no. We're not listening. We want a king over us. And then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go up before us and to fight our battles. To fight our battles. Yahweh had always said, if you trust me, you won't have to fight any battles because I'll fight your battles for you and I'll do it in surprising ways. But they couldn't trust him. They couldn't trust God enough. And so they said, we want a king. We want to be like all these other nations. We don't want to trust. We don't want to trust in you. These other nations, they don't have to trust in, you know, their security to some invisible God. No, they have impressive kings and impressive militaries and impressive chariots and horses and swords and all this great stuff. We want to be like them. And there's some of these nations around us that don't even like us, and it's a little scary. We're getting a little worried about them, right? And what do we got? We got this invisible God, this half-dead prophet, and three idiot sons. We need a king. I want a king. I want a king. Why can't we have one, right? This is what they, they, they they're, they're kings. They get to have these awesome big thrones rooms and, 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 you know, and, and all these flags that wave in the wind when they march into town and all the aristocracy and castles and horns that blow. We want to be like that. We don't want to trust in a God we can't see. And this God won't even let us build some impressive, intimidating idol that scares our enemies. So what does God say? He says, okay, fine. I'll let you have a king. He concedes to this concept of a human king, and he accommodates their poor desires, their choices, because he can see this is where they're at. He accommodates them. Now, let me ask you, does God like this? No. Does he want this? No. Does he want to have this sort of mediated relationship with the people of Israel? No, but this is what his children want. This is the same thing they, they expressed back at the Mount Sinai when they told Moses, like, you go talk to God. He scares us. God didn't want that. He wanted to be with all of, all of his children. This is what the children want. And so God is again, once again, he's accommodating people where they're at. He's going to play this role that they're used to of this ancient Near Eastern king-centered deity. Now, what's going on here, folks, is that Simply, once again, we're seeing what God always does, and that is that God stoops to meet his people where they're at. He stoops to meet people where they're at. This God refuses to coerce people into having all the right feelings about him. He doesn't lobotomize people. He stoops to where they're at. He, does, he, he meets them where they're at in their infancy, 
right? He plays the role that they need him to play. It's the world they know. And this God, he loves them so much, and he's so patient. He, he bears their sin. He endures their unchristlike attitudes toward other people, even their own fallen images of him for over a thousand years until the coming of Christ when he can reveal himself fully. But never forget, never forget, this system of kings and lords, it's an accommodation. It's always been God's consent to something less than his best. It was never his perfect will. Because even though the Lord allowed it, remember he says to Samuel, he says, it's not you they rejected, but in choosing to trust a human king, they've rejected me. Now this is so important, guys. This means that to choose to trust a human king amounts to rejecting God as king. To choose to trust a human king amounts to rejecting God as king. It's that simple. Now, Scott, that seems pretty radical thing to say. It is. But Jesus says the same thing. He comes along in, in Matthew 6 and, and reminds us, guys, you cannot serve two masters. You can't do it. Not if one of the masters is God. Right? You can't do it. We've got a lot of tradition that says you can serve two masters. You can play sort of the, the, the mental gymnastics and, and straddle that fence. You can pretend you can do it. You can pretend you're serving two masters. You can convince yourself and your best friend and your mother-in-law that you can serve two masters if one of them is God, but you can't do it. Jesus says you're fooling yourself. You're fooling yourself if you think you can. You can't have two masters when one of them is God. Because to put your trust in man is to withhold your trust from God. These trusts are absolutely in opposition to one another. So the only reason why we would trust in a human king or a human form of government is because we're not trusting in God or God's form of government. And so, folks, the, the word to us this morning is that all of our trust, all of our trust uh, is to be in Jesus Christ. And that means we shouldn't be placing any of our trust in human rulers. Amen. There we go. That's why. We shouldn't be trusting in human rulers. And if all of our devotion and if all of our allegiance is to, is to be to the kingdom of God, then we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't let any human form of government or any human leader sidetrack us from our joy and our faith in being ambassadors in his kingdom, okay? Now, yes, he tells us to live at peace uh, whenever possible with our human rulers, with human governments, to honor and obey authorities. We're told that in the New Testament. To honor and obey authorities that are over us, just as the early church did with the, with the Romans, as, as, as much as they could. But they didn't take up arms, right? They didn't take up arms against the Romans. But they were also never to swear their allegiance to them. We're never to swear allegiance to put our trust in them because, ladies and gentlemen, we've already pledged our allegiance to the King of kings and Lord of lords, and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen? See, we've already put our allegiance and our trust in in a king. Jesus says his kingdom is not of this world. And that means if we're still obsessed with trying to get our guy or our woman on the human throne, then we have missed the point of our great commission, of our marching orders that Jesus gave us when he left. So as ambassadors of the kingdom of God, where Christ alone is king, the king of God was where Christ is king, our calling is to answer this question. What does it look like in a world that's so full of these toxic polarities of people trusting in different humans and rulers and fighting over which broken, sinful person is most worth fighting for and dying for and killing for? Whose message, we argue, whose message of, of hatred is a more worthwhile banner for us to, to march under? Who's the lesser of two evils? I've heard that so many times. But who's the lesser of two evils? I have an idea. Why serve any evil? Why serve anyone who's evil? <laughs> Amen? Don't put your trust in anyone evil. What does it look like to have a people who put all their trust and all their devotion and all their allegiance in Jesus Christ and his kingdom? To pledge all of our loyalty, not to the, the biggest and meanest and loudest leader we can find, but to the lamb, to his kingdom, the mustard seed kingdom. The hidden treasure kingdom. What does it look like to be people who just march to a different drum? People who can stay above this toxic pollution of our political atmosphere and not get sucked into the, all the nasty rhetoric that others hurl towards people who disagree with them. 
What would it look like to be a people with that peace that passes all understanding because their hope and their confidence is not in any particular form of government. It's not in a military might or particular ruler or particular party. Their peace and their confidence is anchored in Christ Jesus and his eternal kingdom. Because when it is, then that your peace is, it doesn't go up or down based on circumstances or economy or recession or economic situations or even global situations. When everyone else is running around like Chicken Little, sky is falling, ah, it's, everything's coming to an end, help us, right? Or, or they're out there screaming, we've got God on our side. They're the demons, vote for us or you're a terrible human being. All that craziness. What does it look like to have a people who just keep their eyes focused on Jesus Christ and him crucified? And they're marching forward in love and unity of mission, not uniformity. We can have different opinions, but unity of mission. Praise God. Doing his will to be people offering themselves as a sacrifice, serving those who oppose them, loving those who hate them, revealing Jesus to people who so desperately need them. They're so mixed up revealing Jesus to them instead of turning the church into just another political action committee that divides us and even the world finds phony. I mean, we might win a race or two, but at what eternal cost? The, the, the pastor, Andy Stanley, says this so well in his book. He says, in the 2020 election cycle, from pundits and pastors alike, the battle lines were drawn. Jesus' name was invoked. And in the end, we still can't agree on who won. The only clear outcome is that the church lost. He goes on to say, the problem with the culture war is that there aren't just winners and losers, there are casualties. And when the church takes a leading role in the fray, the casualty is always the faith of the next generation, which is sacrificed on the altar of temporary power and political gain. Christ have mercy on us. What does it look like to be people who, who are committed to not having our minds conformed to the image of MSNBC? or to have our minds conform to the image of Fox News, right? Or this outlet, or that outlet. But we're committed to being transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus. Because, uh, guys, Jesus don't look like CNN. He don't look like Fox. He doesn't look like, he doesn't look like Democrats, or Republicans, or Green Party, or Pilgrim Party, or any, or any of the other parties. He looks like Jesus Christ crucified. And he's altogether unique and altogether distinctive and altogether beautiful. That is the Jesus that we're to model. And that's where our hope should lie. That's where our trust should lie. We're talking about our trust. Praise God. Our job should be to answer this question for the culture. What does it look like? But it can only happen, all of this can only happen if all of our trust and all of our devotion is to Jesus. But that takes courage. That takes courage. Because, I'll tell you this, being an ambassador for Jesus, the Prince of Peace, see, really see, waking up every day and letting God just renew your mind, say, Lord, let me, let, me, let me step back into my role and my mission here. Help me to be more like you today. And stepping into that, that to serve the Prince of Peace, I will tell you, it looks often in this culture like the weak choice. That's what it looks like. Choosing to love others and even listen to them and bless them rather than conquer them will look to other Christians like cowardice and compromise. You'll get that. I can show you the emails. <laughs> cowardice and compromise. Because, let's face it, Jesus is great, but he is invisible. And he's all nice and all. But, you know, today, that's not what we need. Today calls for a warrior. Right? Jesus just doesn't kick butt like we need our leaders to do, like our superheroes do today. He's like an inconvenient king. It's a lot easier to get behind some loud, blustering human who will do our dirty work for us, who will mock our opponents, who will be our team's champion. That's what we want. And I get it. Yeah, inwardly, we like root for that, that person. 
it's a lot easier to do that than trust in this invisible God to perform his will through us and through love and sacrifice and kindness. See, this is the choice that Israel had before it. Israel had this choice to let God be their king, and they chose a human king. And God told Israel, it was really interesting, he said, okay, you want a king, I'll give you a king, I'll let you have a king, but you go ahead and choose him. If you read the scriptures, yeah, it's interesting because he's like, I'm not going to pick him for you. If you're going to pick my replacement, you're going to reject me as king, uh, I'm not going to pick my successor, you get to. And so the first king of Israel that they pick is Saul, King Saul. Do you know why they pick King Saul? The scripture says it several times. They pick him because it's the reason most people pick their politicians to lead them. The scripture says he was tall and handsome. In other words, he looked the part. He's tall and handsome, right? It's like Aragon. It's gotta, he's got to be the he's got to be the guy we want, because everyone knows that being tall and handsome is the prerequisite for being a competent leader, right? Everybody loved Saul. He's tall and handsome. He's self-assured. He's not afraid to take matters into his own hands. That's Saul. Trouble is, this tall, handsome candidate named Saul, as sometimes happens in politics, believe it or not, uh, what you see is not always what you get, right? And, uh, and he looked great with that crown on his head and his like, hair was flowing in the wind as he's gazing upon the crowds, the adoring masses. Turns out he was neurotic, fearful, image-obsessed, people-pleasing, quick-to-lash-out, a demon-possessed guy uh, who ends up rejecting God because he fears losing the favor of the people, the crowd. And God tries to work with him. It is interesting. This is not God's first choice. He promises him in 1 Samuel 13, God tells Saul, if you'll walk with me, your house will be established forever. God's like, you weren't my first choice, but we'll make this happen, Captain. Come on, you can do it. I'm fooling for you. God tried. And God was sincere. He said, you can do this, Saul. But Saul turns out to be this neurotic people pleaser who rejects God. So God, it says that God withdraws his spirit and Saul becomes this disastrous, weak leader. He leads his army into war and total destruction. He, and he blames everybody but himself. If you read it, he becomes insanely jealous of other people. He turns on the best of his people beside him. He tries to kill David like several times. Uh, he even consults a witch at one point to get spiritual advice. I don't advise you to do that. Um, and in the end, the poor guy kills himself. But who comes next on the throne? King David. Yes, finally, surely now we have a model for the kind of king we want to have over us. A man after God's own heart. Except when he wasn't. Right? Scriptures tell us, except when, except when as he was want to do when he and his men would march into a, a, a region or a village and conquer it, they would kill every man, woman, and child. Except when he sexually assaults a married woman who's not allowed to refuse him because he's the king, and then has her husband murdered, who was a loyal soldier. See, folks, what the Bible spells out super plainly is that there is no good king option. There's no like, okay, now we get a good king. There's no option. It's all part of the same God-rejecting system that trusts in human might and power over Christ. Friends, when it comes to you and me today, let's make this real practical. What are we saying? Today, we're in an election season. When it comes to elections or, or politics or legislation, it's okay to participate. Okay, so hear me now. Um, if anybody says, Scott said you can't participate in, election, in politics, you're hearing me? I didn't say that, right? Tracy, do you hear me? I'm going to send them to you if they said that. You can't, if, if they say, Scott said you can't vote, you can vote. It's okay to have opinions and prefer one guy over the other. I, I'm not one of these that advocate for complete withdrawal from the process. There are some, and I, and I respect their, and I know where they're coming from. I, I respect those Christians' opinions too. Just get out of the whole thing. But, it, because, well, mainly because it's an interesting thing. In this land that we live in as ambassadors, they ask our opinion. It's called the vote, right? So yeah, we're ambassadors in this land, but they actually ask our opinion. So praise God for that. I, so uh, I'm grateful for that 
that right that we have. It's an uncommon right, historically speaking. The Apostle Paul, if you look at the Apostle Paul, he, um, he didn't have any hesitation in voicing his rights as a citizen when it was helpful to him. There was one time he told the guys, you can't beat me, I'm a Roman citizen. So yeah, you can pray fervently for the election. Uh, you can vote your opinion. Um, and I'm sure your opinion is the right opinion. Thank God for you. But I would just say, be careful. May that ring in your ears. Be careful, because here's the danger. The more your opinion matters to you, and you're sure of it, the more angry you get at people who disagree with you. Never forget, even then, even when you're going to the, the polls and you're going to, we don't pull levers anymore, right? That's old. Whatever we do, even when you go to the polls, never forget, Jesus says you're in this world, you're not of it. You're in this world. You're not of this world. They're asking your opinion, so give it. That's fine. You may live here. You may work here. You may raise your family here. It's not your home. This isn't your home. Either by accident of your birth or by, you know, uh, the choice to immigrate to this land. You're here. You live here, but you're an ambassador, and your allegiance is to another your allegiance is to another. You are here to rescue these people, not join their infighting. You're here to reveal a hope that exists outside their political power dynamics, not grasp for that ring of power, right? To use another nerdy Lord of the Rings analogy, right? And you would say, oh, but Frodo, I would use the ring for good, right? I would establish Christ's kingdom in the earth, for him, for all to follow, all will love me and despair. <laughs> so, let God open your eyes to the bigger reality going on this election season. There's a bigger thing going on. The more important role you play, even than getting your one two hundred millionth of a vote right, there's a more important role you play than just voting right. Because the truth is, folks, if heaven is your home, we already have our king. We already have our king, right? And he's already been inaugurated with the resurrection. He won. He's already won. And, and one of the many advantages of having Jesus as your, your, your true president is that you never have to worry about his reputation being tarnished, right? You don't have to worry about some scandal, some act of treason that they're going to uncover, right? You, he'll never lie to you to protect his image. No, no, no. He'll, he'll never, you never have to second guess his motives or his love for you or for all people because he totally proved his character up on the cross. He's proven himself to be faithful time and time again. You never have to doubt. You never have to make excuses for him to other people. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's terrible. She's terrible. But mm. you don't have to do that with Jesus because he's perfect. Perfect. He's loving. He's the God of limitless love. He's the same today, yesterday, and forever. He's not taking any opinion polls. He's not changing his opinion to make people happier. He's against no one. He's for everyone. He does everything in service to everyone else, not in service to himself. Jesus Christ, King of Kings, you can put all your eggs in that basket. Amen? You can put all your hope in that basket, all your trust. You can pledge allegiance to that King and no other. Now, listen, I know. I know this isn't necessarily a popular stance to take right now. Um, and it actually, sadly, it might actually make you in the minority, even in some Christian circles. Uh, there's, there's Christian leaders, I, I, I know, I hear of them, who are, who are pushing the agenda. They're, they're pushing the culture war, they're pushing the fear, the hostility, the us versus them, the, the whole, you know, bar the door, eat the rich, whatever, own the libs, all that bluster, driving us toward human messiahs and, and looking for worldly power, getting in bed with Caesar, if I just got to be honest, legislative solutions for all of our salvation, all of our security. But I have seen a rise in churches, praise God, who are taking a stand the other way. I, it's, it's, it's been a blessing to my heart to see the rise in churches who are saying, enough and who are rediscovering what Jesus meant when he said, my kingdom is not of this world, and go into this world and preach the good news and make disciples. Amen? We are not alone out there, guys. 
It may feel like it sometimes, but we're not alone out there. There are more and more Christians every day who are waking up to the sacred call to attract people to Jesus, to love our neighbors. That's not easy, but we can do it. To love our enemies and to love sinners and reveal the Jesus who loves them, not block their view of Jesus with our, our picket signs and our social media blasts. Reveal Jesus. Reveal Jesus. But I will tell you this. I don't care how alone we might find ourselves at Generations. This church will never get its eyes off Jesus. And I'm just telling you that. It's my solemn promise to you. We will not get our eyes off Jesus. This church will never follow any other ruler. We will never follow any Lord but Jesus, the crucified and resurrected Christ. And I refuse to lose hope because my hope is built on nothing less than his blood and righteousness. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This morning, we have the the supreme pleasure of uh, partaking in in an act uh, which so perfectly epitomizes the character of Jesus, the kingship of Jesus, and that is communion. I mean, just the manner Think about communion, the manner by which he desires to be remembered and celebrated. Not with trumpets, not with military parades of weapons down the street, but with a meal of bread and wine in fellowship with believers, among friends, in quiet gratitude and solemn contemplation. This is the kind of king we serve. He says, this is how I want you to celebrate me. I'm going to read the words of the Apostle Paul as you're, you're getting your elements ready there. 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He says something right after this. I don't often read, and I want to read it. He says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves, therefore, and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So this is so important. The Lord's Supper, communion, it's open to all, regardless of your denomination, whatever your church affiliation. It's not exclusive to just one tribe of believers, whether you're a charismatic or a Catholic, I don't care. But we are warned to examine ourselves. What does it mean to be unworthy? To be unworthy of this means to come in an anti-Christ attitude. To partake of Christ with an anti-Christ attitude. We can do that in a couple different ways. Either treating Christ as common as unholy, like, ah, I don't care, I'm just going to take it. It's just another thing. Or an antichrist attitude means seeing ourselves and our tribe as the ones who are worthy to sit at the head of the table, right? To, to view communion as a testament to our exceptionalism. Christ have mercy on us. Because neither of those is worthy of the lamb who was slain. So in obedience to scripture, I'm going to ask us this morning to, we're going to confess our sins. We're going to confess our sins. The Lord, the the New Testament tells us to confess our sins one to another. And that could just mean doing it publicly. This prayer of confession on the screen as we prepare our hearts for communion, if, if you're in agreement, will you say this aloud with me? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done, by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart, 
we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name, amen. Amen. Now, if you prayed that sincerely from your heart, the word says that he is merciful to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. That's what Scripture tells us. And so we can declare confidently now, whatever it is, whatever guilt, whatever shame you walked in here with, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can declare that your sins are forgiven. That is good news. And so this this bread and this cup in your hands, then for you, this is truly a gift from the Lord. Not because you earned it, but because he did. So it's his gift to you. Uh, For for everyone who loves him, for everybody who wants to love him more, it's for you who have much faith and for you who have little. For you who have been here often, for you who have not been here long, for you who have tried to follow and for you who have failed. You are exactly who the Lord wants to commune with in this moment. Amen? Amen. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you, Lord. Thank you. King Jesus, thank you. Thank you for leading us. Thank you for loving us. Because you have made us not just servants and subjects, you have made us children, brothers and sisters, family of God. Praise you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Well, Stand to your friends. Uh, stay, stand to your feet, friends. <laughs> stand. <laughs> Our prayer partners are coming forward right now. And uh, if there's anything you need prayer about, anything at all, anything going on with your body or just a need, you need someone to stand in faith with you and agree with you to, for God to hear your prayer. I invite you to come forward. Let these wonderful people pray with you. If you want to say yes to Jesus for the first time, you want to make him your Lord, your Savior, your King of your life, you don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to be perfect. But these guys would love to lead you in that prayer to help you take that next step of letting Jesus rule and reign in our hearts to become a kingdom person. There's nothing like it in the whole wide world. Amen? Amen. So my friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be merciful to you. Amen. And as we go forth, May we pledge all allegiance to King Jesus. Amen. Grace and peace be with you. Bye-bye.